I started to get older and understand a little bit more. I started to recognize that this wasn't the cause of a bad child or a child just being a child. It was a mental illness and it was something that she could not control without the help and support of a treatment plan and medication. Because nobody knew that this was a mental illness at the time, there was a lot of blame from family members who had heard about what was going on inside my household. So growing up as a child, I had a sister and a lot of our family members just was a case of bad kids. So there was just a lot of blame from them saying that, oh, just make sure you don't do anything to upset your mom. It was a lot of walking on eggshells. It was a lot of don't do that or, you know, your mom might get mad. It was a lot of that that prevented us from being kids back then rather than worrying about what was actually going on with my mom. Since you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that having a serious mental illness diagnosis like schizophrenia affects not only the individual, but their loved ones too. And if you happen to be a child of a parent who lives with a mental illness, that can bring a whole bunch of very difficult challenges. Growing up, you may feel overwhelmed, scared, sad, or even angry. And you may resent your parent for not being like all of the other parents, or you may fall into the role of being a caregiver and simply trying to fix everything around you. But what about the impact that it has on you, the child, and your future life decisions? Now let's be very clear here. There's no right or wrong way to respond since every situation is incredibly different. And today, we are so lucky to be speaking with author and academic Dr. Grace Cho from Brooklyn, New York, whose memoir, Taste Like War, was a 2021 National Book Award finalist. Her book is coming to terms with her mother being diagnosed with schizophrenia, the social factors that left her feeling incredibly vulnerable, and the stigma that kept her from treatment for so long. Grace, it truly is an honor to connect with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so Grace, let's back up. Now, I understand your mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia later on in life. What were some of the symptoms that you saw your mother experiencing? When my mother was 45, she did not get an official diagnosis. I was the one who identified her as having schizophrenia because I noticed things like delusions of grandeur, thinking that she was involved in government conspiracies. She suddenly stopped being able to do the things that she used to do. She quit her job. She had been a forager, but she stopped going out into the wilderness doing those things. She lost an interest in cooking. She started to become very suspicious of people who were just part of our everyday lives. And I also started to notice what appeared to me like her talking to somebody in the room who wasn't there. And so as these things started to accumulate, I knew that something was wrong. And I was too afraid to talk to anybody until I had done my own research. So I went to my high school library, checked out a couple of books. One was the psychology textbook and the other was the DSM. And by reading those two books... I came to the conclusion that my mother had paranoid schizophrenia. Wow, Grace, that is a lot. And I was 15 at the time, and she didn't actually get an official diagnosis for another eight years. Wow. So how old was she when she was officially diagnosed then? I guess she would have been 53, 54. 
And at 15, there you are going into the library as a teenager uh-huh. to try and diagnose your mother. I can't even imagine what that was like having the foresight to think, I need to figure this out. And then coming to the realization that your mother did, in fact, have paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, I was always a very studious child. And even though I had never known anyone with a mental illness, I knew that our society sees it as very stigmatic and especially one that involves hearing voices. So it was important to me to know what I was talking about before I approached an adult about what I saw going on with my mom. And then I approached my father and my brother. My brother was seven years older than me, so he was out of the house at that point. He hadn't lived with my mom during that period when I was seeing all the changes. And my father was a merchant marine, so he was gone six months out of the year. So I question how much he observed himself, but I was the one who was with my mom all the time. So I waited until my brother was home on college break and talked with him and my father. And when I said that I thought that she had paranoid schizophrenia, they were so angry at me. They accused me of, in my father's words, a goddamn liar. How can you say something like that about your mother? And my brother echoed that sentiment, though not quite as harshly, but he seemed outraged that I would even suggest such a thing. And so once again, I was left to my own devices to try to do anything about it. So my next step then, because the rest of my family was in denial about it, was to go to the local community mental health care center. I don't know that I would have been so motivated to act if I hadn't noticed how these things were undermining her. Because I do think it's possible to live with voices and have a productive and meaningful and happy life. But that wasn't the case with my mom. I was seeing all of her social relationships unraveling and her ability to work crumble. And so I went to speak with a counselor and I felt like I was betraying my family by doing that. I was so scared because I was only 15 and my brother and my dad had already made it so clear that I should never speak that word, schizophrenic. But as I was talking, I started to feel like, okay, there is going to be some resolution coming out of this meeting. But what the counselor told me was that it was too late for my mom, that there was nothing that they could do. Because at the time, so this was 1986, we didn't really have much research that was based on women's experiences. And we now know that for women, the onset of schizophrenia can be much later in life than for men. Wow, so Grace, you are 15 years old. You feel like you're betraying your family by using the word schizophrenia with your mother. And then you seek professional help and you're being told it's too late. There's nothing you can do, Grace. Yeah. Is there any way to put into words what you felt at that moment? Yeah, the way I often describe it is that it was the origin of my Han, which is a Korean word that loosely translates as knotted grief. over injustice, right? I remember literally feeling this nodding in my chest that was throbbing. And so now I understand that as this emotional force that developed at that time and propelled me forward on the journey that I wrote about in my memoir. What an appropriate term to use. Yeah. So what did you do after you walked out of that clinic and you were told it was too late Well, one thing the counselor had said to me was, it's impossible to make her get help. Only the police can do that. 
And so my understanding was that if there were an incident that involved the police, then they would come to the house and take her to a psychiatric hospital and tell her that she had to get some sort of treatment. That sort of rang in my head because it was the one tiny glimmer of hope that that counselor left me with. (laughs) I can't even remember what it was, but my mom and I had gotten into some sort of a fight and I tried to escalate it and tried to provoke her into hitting me so that I could call the police. And when they arrived, they handcuffed her and took her to jail, which was not at all what I thought was going to happen. And it was a total disaster. And so I had my dad already angry at me for saying that I thought my mom had schizophrenia. After that, he was even more furious with me. And it was something that my mom didn't forgive me for many years, but I didn't know that she had been harboring this anger towards me for so long. Grace, you were just trying to do the right thing. You were just trying to get your mom help. Let's talk about the role that stigma played in your decision to continue trying to get that help for your mother. I think that after every attempt that I had made failed when I was a teenager, I just went on to live my life and learned to pretend like everything was fine. Because in my family, no one could talk about it. And it wasn't until 1994 when my mom got a diagnosis. And that was because my brother's wife believed it was schizophrenia as well. And I think that she convinced my brother to take her to a psychiatrist. But I think that stigma has been very strong in my family, even afterwards, because I don't remember anyone, maybe other than my sister-in-law, ever saying the word schizophrenia even after she had a diagnosis and was taking medication for it. As a young adult, it became my mission, in a sense, to want to understand the context of my mother's life in a deeper sense, ultimately to destigmatize the experience of what we call schizophrenia. So I think it has been very powerful in propelling me forward into my research and writing and speaking about it. One of the things that I tried to do in Tastes Like War was to get the reader to consider the meaning of the voices because what Western psychiatry says is that they don't mean anything. It's just a symptom of a broken brain. But through the experiences with my mom, I came to understand that sometimes these voices were speaking about the past. They were speaking about family history And so that we might actually stand to learn something by listening to the voices that so-called schizophrenics hear, right? So that those voices should not simply be pathologized, but might be a really important source of information, not just about that person in relation to whatever treatment plan you come up with, but about a larger history that we're all connected to. Did you start listening to the content in what she was saying when she was experiencing delusions? I couldn't hear them, but I tried to ask about them sometimes in a way that was non-threatening, that would invite her to speak about them if she wanted to, Mm -hmm. so that she knew that I was not one of the people who was saying, we need to stop these voices and shut them down with medication. And so sometimes she would talk a little bit about the voices. She would say if they were really bothering her or at times when she seemed to have some harmony with them, she would mention that. And there were even moments when the voices actually were calling out to her certain dates that were significant. And those were the dates that led me to Korean history. When the clock said 945, she would call out the date September 45, which was when U.S. troops occupied the southern half 
of the Korean Peninsula. So it was almost as if her interaction with those voices helped to guide my research. And I do think about, think of a lot of my work as work that I almost co-authored with my mom because she gave me so much guidance in that sense. Grace, I think it speaks to your strength that you took everything that you went through as a young person and, as you said, propelled you to make a difference and to lead you where you are today. But I can't imagine, as you said, just going on with your life and pretending. So how did you manage? When I went away to college, it was easy to forget because I had this distance. I went to college across the country. And so I didn't see my mom that often. And so it was this double life that I was leading. When I was away at college with my friends, I was able to not get mired in all of these issues that my family was going through. But then whenever I went back home for visits, there were these really painful reminders. And it wasn't until it was the year I turned 23. I think that was the turning point when I decided to dedicate my studies to understanding the context of my mother's life. Because that year, it seemed as if her mental illness got worse. This was actually after she got a diagnosis and was put on medication. She tried to take her life a couple of times that year. And it was when I was in the hospital with her, I made this promise that I was going to go back to grad school. I made that promise because I knew it was something that would give her hope or give her a sense of purpose for herself. But ultimately, it turned into this space where I was able to sort through all of these questions and experiences through academic work. I want to say that it was the trauma or that pun getting tighter and tighter that was the force that pushed me forward. Okay, Grace, now we're just going to take a minute and we're going to listen to this woman's experience talking about her own mother's mental illness. I would say that I shut down going through this emotionally. So as I said before about protector mode, I shut down my emotions and I put up a wall for a long time. It wasn't until probably early 30s that I took down that wall and started to feel my emotions again. It was survival mode and it was a lot of resentment for a long time. I think about it now and it makes me emotional, just the way that I handled things back then and the way that I'm trying to handle them now, now that she's medicating, we have, you know, trying to build on that relationship now, but it was a lot of resentment and anger. I was angry for a long time. I talked to her every day and I think she's very unaware of a lot that has happened. So it's hard for me to accept that because I, I wish I could forget, but I can't. But I can accept now and the relationship now. And she, again, trying to separate the person from the illness and remind myself of that every day. You could hear the emotion in that woman's voice and the anger. Grace, how did you cope with your mother's diagnosis of schizophrenia? Well, it's interesting because I can see how easy it would be to feel anger and resentment towards the parent because in a lot of ways it sort of taps into these childhood feelings of abandonment because they can't be there for you. But I don't think that my anger was directed at my mom so much as to external forces. And sometimes I felt resentful towards my peers who had mothers who could be there for them. I had this sense of jealousy that their mothers are coming to their graduations or going to their weddings or that they get to leave the house. My mom was 
essentially a shut-in for 14 years. So that was really difficult for me. But I think that over the course of those 14 years, I learned to develop a lot of empathy for her because the other thing that happened the year that I turned 23 was that someone in my family told me the big family secret about my mom, which was that she used to be a sex worker for the U.S. military in Korea. And so once I started to imagine that that was her life as a young person, younger than me at the time that I learned that, it just, it filled me with so much heartache that I saw her completely differently. So I almost started to imagine my mother as a child, as a child who was denied many opportunities. And so that was one of the main pieces that I had to work through, something that I saw as the reason that she became schizophrenic. You're listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC Partner Organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about serious mental illness and everything that's around it. Together, we truly can make a difference. I still love my mom. I love her more now, I think, than I did when I was younger because I didn't understand her. And now I do, so I have more compassion. I don't know if that was really her when she was that ill. And that's what I try to say. I try to think that she didn't know. Her brain was hijacked at the time. That's how it helps me get through, like knowing that my mom's brain was hijacked and that wasn't really her. When she did pull a knife on people and on the paramedics that time, You've been listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, And for this episode, we have author and associate professor, Dr. Grace Cho, who's giving us an idea of what her journey was like having a mother diagnosed with schizophrenia. And now we're going to take a listen to another clip. We're going to listen to a daughter whose mother also has a serious mental illness and the impact that it had on her as an adult. When you talk about resentment, you have friends that are close to their moms and their moms are always normal and they did girl things and they did shopping. So resentment of not having a normal mom. And I wish, like I said, my daughter, I quite often say to my daughter, she's lucky that she's able to talk to me and that I can go shopping with her. And that's normal stuff. I didn't have that normal stuff. For a long time, I swore that I wouldn't have kids because I was scared to either be what my mom was or have a type of mental illness and put my kids through what I was through, and I wanted to avoid that. So that's part of why I haven't. And then the other part is my mentality has kind of changed on that now because my sister had the same mentality for a long time until she had a kid. and. Her mindset shifted where she wanted to show up in a way that my mom never did. So she became the best mom. When that happened, I was like, oh, maybe I could do it. So we'll see. But that definitely has played a role in my future. So after listening to that clip, Grace, I'm curious how your mother's illness impacted your life and the path that you decided to take. So much of my path was 
focused on studying so that I could understand the context of my mother's life, our family history, the history of the Korean War, because I think so many of the triggers for what happened to her are rooted in the experiences of war. So it definitely really shaped the path that I took because I just needed answers. I needed to understand what happened to her, what might have happened to her, how this became our history and what my place was in it. Simultaneously, while I was in graduate school, my mom lived about three hours away from me. And so I would go down on the weekends to visit her and cook for her. And she taught me how to cook Korean food, which was something that she did not teach me how to do when I was growing up. So learning to cook Korean food for her really changed my life and my relationship with her because I started to notice how eating the foods of her past provided some sort of comfort for her. It also provided me this link to the past that I had been cut off from growing up because I grew up in this very xenophobic white community where you're not supposed to explore your Korean heritage. And so all of that was an unknown to me until I was in the situation of cooking for my mom through her schizophrenia. So in some ways, her illness was healing for me because it allowed me to get close to her in a way that I don't know that I would have been able to and also to have access to this family history. And it's interesting in the clip that you played about having children. I did not want to have children until my mom died. And then almost immediately after she was gone, I had this overwhelming desire to have a child. And I think it was to try to restore that biological connection that I had just lost. Now I have a son. It's been wonderful. I did have some fears once I approached my mid-40s, the age my mom was when I started to notice that she was showing signs of schizophrenia. I was really scared that the same thing might happen to me. But I did tell myself that I didn't have most of the social risk factors that my mom had. I did not have the traumas that my mom had. And I'm much more educated on the topic than she was. And I have a family who knows that I would want to seek some sort of treatment. Grace, I'm so happy that you have that support system around you. Thank you. It's ironic, too, because I only got to this point of creating family and community around me through a very painful process of losing other family members who did not agree with the way I wanted to do things and who were against me being public about it because they were so ashamed of the mental illness as well as my mother's history as a sex worker. We've talked so much about your mother and what you went through as a young person. I'm curious, what is your relationship like today with both your father and your brother? Well, my father passed away in 1998. And as far as I know, I don't think that he ever acknowledged that my mom had a mental illness. I mean, he knew that there was some problem with her behavior. And I think that he may have suggested that she see a doctor, but I don't recall him ever acknowledging that it was mental illness or ever apologizing to me for calling me a liar. And then other family members, like my brother, I think he just doesn't want me to be public about it. And so he opposes my work. And I haven't spoken to him since 2020. Last time I spoke to him in person, I think was 2013. I'm estranged from the family that I grew up in, primarily because of my work and because of my stance that it's important to speak out about these things. Yeah, of course. You could have just put your head in the sand and said, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to pretend this doesn't exist. And let's face it, that happens in our society where people would rather just 
pretend that people with mental illness don't exist. Yeah. Grace, you have the courage to go to your father and your brother. And now today you're still being ostracized for speaking out. What gives you the strength to keep going, Grace? When I was 15, it just felt like it was necessary for my survival because I mentioned how my mom and I were this diet because my dad was away at sea. My brother had moved out of the house and we lived in a community where we were still considered foreigners. And so I just needed her to be okay. So that's why I was so driven then. But over time, now as an adult, so many people have told me that my work means something to them because they also have family members who have mental illness or they themselves have experienced it. And so that always gives me the motivation and the courage to continue. And you had talked about how food made or allowed that connection between you and your mother to grow. I know your mother has passed now, but what was the relationship like with your mother during that time before she did pass away and after she was diagnosed? It's interesting because she used to be this really passionate cook and forager. She just loved to feed people. So once I was in the role of trying to feed her, it was really difficult for me at first because it felt unnatural. It felt forced. It represented a kind of loss that I wasn't quite ready to deal with, that I knew that my mother wasn't going to cook anymore. She resisted it and rejected it at first. But over the course of a few years, she started to accept my cooking and then start to ask for things. By the end of her life, we had a very close relationship through all of these shared meals and through bonding over the past and family history. And it was really special, you know. I think that some of the conversation around having a parent who has schizophrenia often is focused on what they're not able to provide. And there was a time earlier in our relationship where that was where my thinking was too. But by the end, I was starting to see all the gifts that she was giving me through this relationship, even though it was a very unconventional relationship because we were limited to the space of her apartment that she never left. Right. So Grace, I have to ask, how is your hun doing today? It's something that I think is always there, right? And the idea in Korean also is that it's a, sort of a collective feeling as well. But it doesn't strangle me the way it used to. I only feel it, for the most part, as a force of movement, as something that reminds me of why social justice is important. It's been very productive for me. It's a creative force for me. I love that. And it really has propelled you, Grace. Thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed our chat. And thank you for your openness and your transparency. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your mother's story with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's such an important conversation. Thank you. And a huge thank you to you, our audience, for joining us for this episode. Together, we can change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia and end the many myths and stereotypes that still exist today. If you have any questions or any comments whatsoever, tweet us at BC Schizophrenia. And to get our latest episode, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us today. We hope to see you next episode. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, the North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca. Thank you.